I met this character over 30 years ago, um, suitably across the street, beating up the guitarist in his own band. Uh, they had just played at CB's, and his guitarist I wasn't too much of a fan of either. So uh, they got into a fistfight. I immediately uh, admired his sterling character from that. And uh, we've, over the years, uh, been in each other's lives in so many different ways from playing. We actually are uh, a rhythm section at one point. I play bass. Steve's an amazing drummer. We played in punk bands and children's bands. We have. We played around the city at uh, children's hospitals and after school programs. Uh, we both got sober well over 20 years ago. Actually, Steve's got nearly 30 years now. 27. 27. I got 21, so he's still leading me by those six years. I have no idea why I'm not catching up, but <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. And um, when I was fortunate enough to be here at the beginning of Dharma Punks, and I dragged Steve to introduce him to Noah, and now Steve is the medical director of Refuge Recovery, and is uh, uh, just an amazing Dharma teacher and guru around town, I don't know what to say. So I just started that sentence and had no way to, so I was just throwing anything that came into my mind. So, let's get started. The the mind is not a single entity. As you probably are aware by now, you have a conscious mind and you have an emotional unconscious mind. Your conscious mind is uh, narrowly focused on maintaining long-term plans, goals, seeking achievement, thought, ideas, and telling your story. And basically, all the stuff that you're conscious of that works through language is your... Um, conscious mind, it's largely but not entirely housed in the left hemisphere, and it seeks to understand the word, world through ideas and through meaning, interpretations. Now, your unconscious, broadly concerned with survival, and by survival I mean watching out for threats, opportunities, and also maintaining your connections to other people. Uh, so if you think about a chipmunk that's foraging for berries, it will be conscious of foraging for nuts and berries, but it's also unconsciously scanning around looking for dogs or cats that would attack it. And it's also keeping track of, I guess, the other squirrels and its family of squirrels. I don't know if they have families, but uh, I'm just throwing that in there because the human unconscious, while we're focused consciously on tasks, and ideas and narratives of trying to make sense of the world, we also have an unconscious that is keeping track of all the threats that have happened and looking out for reprisals of them or reoccurrences and also just keeping track of how well connected do we feel to the attachment figures in our life. So when something pertaining to our survival has occurred, if it's really, really overwhelming, you might shut down, you'll become frozen your parasympathetic nervous system will overwhelm you, you'll check out, your narrative functions will fail, but your emotional mind and the emotional memory systems in the amygdala and the right temporal will still be working. So you might not remember the car crash, the rape, the violent attack, but it will be registered in your unconscious. It's still there, it doesn't go anywhere, but it's not stored like a normal story. 
And so, um, what happens though if beyond traumatic events in our childhood, when our we connect with our parents, not through language at first, but through emotions. We literally speak first through our emotions, our tears, our joy, our, our fear, our visual expressions is how a one-year-old connects with its parents. If the parents can read the child's emotions and mirror them back, the parent will create what's known as a secure child, where the child will expect to be well taken care of by other people as it grows up and will feel confident in exploring the world around it. Um, but there are children who grow up in families where for various reasons, either due to economic pressures, social pressures, family conflicts, death, other disruptions where connection with adult figures is problematic. It doesn't happen smoothly where the child can't de define a regular pattern of a secure attachment where parents are not regularly available to soothe the child when the child fears, has fear, like it runs into a big dog, or loneliness when the child feels disconnected from the parents. If the parents are not securely available, if they're unreliable, the child will wind up with what's known as insecure attachment. There's various different forms of insecure attachment. Some are what's known as anxious attachment, where sometimes the parent is available and is mirroring of some emotions, but other times the parent is unavailable or rejecting of certain emotions. And so that child will grow up to uh, believe that that's the way love is. That's the way relationships work. You have to chase after somebody. You don't get love. You, it's something where other people are sometimes there and sometimes not. So very often people who have anxious attachment will constantly wind up in relationships with people who are emotionally unavailable. And they'll constantly chase after love. And they'll become preoccupied with the significant other. They'll try to get all their needs met by that one person who represents the early childhood unavailable parent. Now some parents are cold, aloof, or engulfing where they're smothering of the child and that child might wind up with what's called avoidant attachment. Unlike the anxious child who's constantly wondering where the caretaker is and then later on in life they are hooking up with people who are unavailable and wondering why they don't get the text message. The avoidant person is somebody who grew up trying to get away, trying to keep their emotional distance and thus feels a uh, desire to be completely self-reliant and doesn't want real intimacy. They like sex just fine, but real, open, disclosing of emotions, intimacy is scary for them because it reminds them of the engulfing or cold parent. And then finally, there are the uh, children who grow up in abusive, very difficult environments. And these children rather than become anxious or avoidant, they learn to freeze their bodies. Freeze their bodies because the body is where most of our emotions are speaking to us. The emotional mind doesn't speak through language, it speaks to you, letting you know that something important has happened through your body. 
But if the emotional activations are too frightening, too overwhelming, you're experiencing too much abuse, your parents are too frightening, you are experiencing traumatic disconnections where suddenly there are no uh, caretaking figures around you, the emotions will feel so strong in the body that you will shut down awareness of your body and flee into fantasy or into other realms. Now all of the last three anxious attachment styles, especially the last, uh, are exceptionally prone to addictive behavioral patterns in life because they haven't in childhood had their emotions securely integrated into their selves because they uh, certain emotions led to abandonment because certain times the soother who's the parent was not available they will experience emotions uh, or certain emotions as very very overwhelming experiences that are frightening to be with and require numbing or uh, some people require on the other hand uh, thrills there are two types of by the way addictions only two, really. There are thrills and chills. <laughs> thrills are things like gambling, cocaine, speed, things that fire up dopamine, and those are for the child whose parents did not know how to mirror joy, happiness, or provide rewards. Chills are downers, benzodiazepines, heroin, alcohol. They inhibit the emotional activation, they essentially freeze the body. And those are for people who experienced uh, very often disturbing experiences when they had certain emotions. And so for that point on their life, they tried to uh, get rid of their emo certain emotions when they arise. There was a study that showed that heroin addicts uh, very often have a strong aversion to feeling any form of anger because they grew up very often in situations where caretakers were falling short of ideal behavior but yet because it was their caretakers they couldn't express their anger so they choose instead heroin which is an excellent way to immediately get rid of anger alcohol is an excellent way as I can attest uh, to allay um, social uh, anxiety. Uh, very often parents who or children who do not feel uh, secure or comfortable in social environments, being observed, being in family systems. Um, people, there are other uh, types of drugs that have their own core emotional events from early childhood. Um, what makes it even more difficult is we tend to introject our caretakers and carry them with us even long after they're dead or we've separated with them. You carry around in your mind what's known as an imago, a representation of those parents. And if they were secure, well, great. You'll probably carry around a self-empowering uh, voice that will give you the necessary narcissistic supplies to help you achieve things in your life. But... If you were like me and one of your parents was a drunk, violent, Russian, scary guy, uh, 
one of the uh, a presence in your mind will be a barking over the top macho voice that tells you you're not manly, not masculine, that other people don't like you, etc. And that will be a part of your internal landscape. So, given that so much that not all of addiction has roots in early uh, attachment relationships, but many, many cases do. It's not surprising that people with addictions love when they hear about meditation and Buddhism because they think they have the image of the guy sitting alone up in the Himalayas, not talking to anyone, and finding peace of mind without any relational work, without any <laughs> interconnection. I have to tell you, and I enjoy doing this because I love bringing bad news now and then, that doesn't work. There is no end run around connecting with other people in recovery. There is no spiritual bypass around connecting. So if you've come to Buddhist practice with the hope that I can or Steve can give you, well, maybe Steve can, but I can't give you the right meditation that will magically remove your need to self-numb or to self-stimulate because deep down inside from early life, there's some emotional states that when you feel them, they're so unpleasant that we need the, to immediately uh, eat, consume, take drugs, shop, gamble, uh, binge on Netflix, sexually compulsively act out. Some people even can get high in relationships with one person. They'll chase the unavailable. So um, there is no spiritual bypass. The only way to address the underlying attachment dis uh, events or the traumatic disappointments that lie beneath addiction is to find community. It doesn't have to be a 12-step community. It can be a Buddhist community. It can be uh, a refuge recovery community. It can be a community of friends where you uh, gather. But the key to that community is that there has to be open disclosure of your emotional states. Because again, the underlying cause of so many forms of addiction is the feeling that my emotions cannot be tolerated, cannot be expressed aloud, are monstrous, must be hidden, must be numbed with substances. And it's only when we find other people that we can disclose our feelings to that we can begin to address the underlying need to uh, essentially self-medicate. Now, once you find a community, there are many other modalities and Buddhist tools that can help stay sober. Metta practice replaces that inner shaming, rejecting imago, that inner voice that says you're not doing enough, not achieving enough, with a voice of unconditional friendliness and kindness. It, in essence, produces a, a second internal presence that counteracts the initial tendency to blame ourselves for being, for having emotions, for having feelings. Insight practice allows us to slowly 
piece by piece become aware of our internal experience without listening to the voice over that tells us we're wrong, that we should be different. Again, that inner imago that is judging and shaming. So inside practice, piece by piece, breaks down internal awareness so that we can actually be with our emotions rather than run from them. Twelve-step communities proffer what's known as God as an attachment figure. So that's another approach to the problem. If you grow up with an early experience where one of your attachment figures was not available, not uh, capable of soothing your emotional activations, people in 12-step recovery create a ideal higher power that is always available, always loving, always accepting. I think that's fine. I have no judgment on that. I happen not to believe in God, so I use my, I use metta, I use other people, I use connection with the monks and Buddhist teachers I've studied with, I use the Dharma as my higher power. I don't use God as a higher power, but I have no problem with it. Finally, therapy creates the most ideal, secure bonding environment. The therapist presents an arena where we can express deeply emotional events in life and slowly the affects or emotions we're feeling are revealed and the therapist instead of uh, or myself as a Buddhist mentor what our job would be is to instead of giving you the early response or the shaming response of peers who abandon you or parents or, or siblings or teachers who didn't give you unconditional tolerance we give you the corrective emotional response where essentially no matter what you present we mirror, we uh, attune, we stay present and through that very slowly but surely the underlying emotional beliefs that were set early on in childhood that my emotions are and my impulses and my feelings are unlovable that there's something in me that nobody else can tolerate that I have to numb whenever I feel it, are alleviated, soothed, given a safe space to be expressed so that we no longer regard them as monstrous, but simply feelings that have to be held and expressed. That's all I got. On to Steve. Find it awesome and alarming that I'm, I end up sitting here as a result of one of my two fist fights I ever had in my entire life. <laughs> Both outside of CBGB's <laughs> with a bandmate. How cool two is different that? different bandmates doesn't get through in that. So I'm really glad to be here tonight and talking about this and um, picking up on, you know, you're talking about attachment. Uh, you spoke a lot about attachment trauma, mm. right? And so trauma um, can start any time. Uh, going back also to your introduction, I'm not the medical director, I'm the clinical director. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I would be practicing without a license if I tried to say that. <laughs> um, but I'm a doctorate in psychology. And in any case, um, uh, from that perspective of uh, working with people on their trauma as a therapist, um, the main modality that I uh, work with is eye movement desensitization reprocessing EMDR therapy. 
and it's something that I was introduced to um, very early in my therapy career. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know me, which is most of the room, I moved to LA, it will be 14 years ago, um, and um, but a lifetime New Yorker before then, and um, I was an educator before I was a therapist. Um, after, after I was a musician, a fist-fighting musician, um, I went on to uh, teach high school English at Clara Barton High School in Crown Heights, um, and was teaching there around the time of the Crown Heights riots. And so uh, I got sort of face-planted into the world of um, social justice education, conflict resolution, anger management. I mean, I was not that sober at the time. <laughs> it was like a couple years, maybe, and I just sort of followed the bouncing ball and I look at that as sort of the beginning of my understanding of the role of trauma in the world. You know, when you're talking about it from a perspective of uh, diversity issues, prejudice, discrimination, you know, it's that institutional uh, trauma or social, uh, socially created trauma. And then, you know, within those, you know, situations or within those larger institutional structures come the more personal uh, traumas. My own, you know, I grew up, my, my parents, they moved us from, I was born in Brooklyn, and we moved to Long Island during that time when people did that, uh, in the uh, end of the 60s, early 70s, and um, they wanted to move to a Jewish neighborhood, and they missed by about, like, five blocks, so <laughs> I was the only Jewish kid in my class, and, and I skipped a grade, and they're like, ah, oh, jeez, we hate you, you skipped a grade, and you're Jewish, we don't even know what that is, and so anyway, so I, I, at that time, that sort of institutionally, in a sense, created trauma led to, you know, me, me being chased down the street, feeling like the other, feeling unprotected. There were other traumas as well. Anyway, so I, I, I developed this sort of, um, uh, through my work, uh, the diversity work, I, I saw trauma's role in things. And as a matter of fact, as I got more into that career, uh, towards the end, I realized I was kind of more in these it felt like therapy. You know, it felt like group therapy, but it didn't feel like I had the, not the ability, but just sort of like the dispensation. That wasn't what I was there for, uh, to therapize. So um, I went back to school. I, I went in that direction. And my first supervisor as a therapist was an EMDR therapist. And so she started to uh, let me dial into um, these uh, consultations. She had a very difficult case and I actually was doing some mindfulness work with this person. I was listening on these cases and I just heard this unbelievable language of the possibility of treatment for trauma. And I found this infinite possibility of the treatment of trauma resulting in relief for people's addictions. Because you know, when I moved out to L.A., I immediately was sort of brought into the world of addiction treatment. And I, I'm not, you know, you need a lot more time for me to talk about any feelings I have about it in general. Um, but what I can say is my, my obsession is sangha. My obsession is choices. My obsession is, you know, refuge recovery being this unbelievable development. Mm. You know, well, when we were kids... They only had the AA. They had to walk 10 miles in the snow. And the fact was, what happened with my, my journey, was, it was so interesting, the, the different journeys towards uh, Buddha that Josh and I had that sort of now in this direction. But I, I was brought to an AA retreat at a Zen Buddhist monastery when I had about four months sober, which is a great time to get started. Because um, I, I went there and 
the first time I ever was asked to sit in this way, I didn't get any instructions at all. I got the instructions were sit down, shut up, don't move. <laughs> and um, they didn't ring another bell for like 55 minutes. And I, you know, my first meditation was like, ring the fucking bell. <laughs> like a mantra. <laughs> and then the bell rang, and like an addict, you know, like as soon as it was over, I was like, when are we doing that again? <laughs> so anyway, I've been sitting ever since. You know, I've been sitting ever since for 27 years, and, um, and it's led me in this direction where, um, you know, I've, I, have, I have found for myself that, um, that trauma is uh, almost 100% of the time, you know, at the bottom of addiction. Uh, it's, it's sometimes it's the, the underlying cause, mm -hmm. you know, childhood, uh, teens, the rest of it. And then, you know, anyone who's uh, an addict here or who has known an addict knows that, you know, we just sort of create some more traumas, mm -hmm. you know, and we're kind of blindly uh, rolling through samsara uh, without a roadmap and without uh, any way of self-regulating other than the addiction. So, um, and any of you who've been a uh, substance addict and then moved on to behavioral addictions, that's uh, you know, something that I did, as uh, they say, switching seats on the Titanic. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when, you, when you notice that that's what's happening, and then you come back to Dharma, where I came back to Dharma, and I was like, okay, life is definitely suffering, got it. Um, the cause is craving and clinging. Wow, I'm a craving a cleaning machine. How'd that happen? And then, you know, how do I end suffering? Through ending craving and clinging. You know, ending addiction. You know, ending the behaviors. You know, um, I remember I also had that early experience in recovery where, you know, when you, it's like you, you buy a Volvo and suddenly you see all the Volvos on the road. I thought everyone was an addict, you know, when I first got sober. And in fact, you know, it's true, right? I mean, in as much as. You know, that's kind of what, uh, it's at the center of what Buddha taught. And then when you look at trauma, your trauma, uh, actually this is helpful, uh, the inventor of EMDR, Francine Shapiro, she just changed the languaging around trauma. She used to say, uh, when it started, it was uh, big T trauma and little t trauma. Mm -hmm. Big T trauma were those things that anyone would see as trauma, you know, natural disasters, combat, you know, all these things, um, abuse in, in childhood. And that small t traumas were those kind of things like, you know, my dad looked at me like this when I was, you know, four, and now anytime anyone looks at me like this, my dad, you know, goes berserk. Um, she changed small t traumas to adverse life events. And again, in terms of sort of my obsession, what I sort of was hoping uh, to bring tonight was just that that it, it used to be or it used to seem like there wasn't a path, or there wasn't a, a road, or there wasn't a way to heal. There was almost, it was like a way that you could put up with it. Mm. Or there was a way, it, it, instead of thriving, surviving. Or um, that you couldn't have the life that you wanted, that it was uh, um, not even for other people, just not available in a certain sense. And now that there's this uh, understanding uh, through Dharma, through mindfulness, and through tra good trauma therapy, that what we're doing is, is we're just taking maladaptively processed memories and we're having them adaptively processed.
And I'm not here to, you know, I, I just plant, I told Josh earlier, you know, I planted my flag in the EMDR soil because that's where I am. I'm 53 years old. I'm not going to go looking for eight other therapies that I'm going to mm. practice to provide this service to people. So there's other, you know, somatic experiencing, brain spot. There's all kinds of things going on. What, what it is is that the, we're, we're in the midst of rewriting the textbooks through our actions. That 15, 20 years from now, I, I really believe that trauma and attachment focused therapy is, is what's going to be happening um, more than anything else. And not for nothing, um, mindfulness, Buddha Dharma um, infused therapy and therapists. And there was a story, um, someone asked Francine Shapiro if EMDR was actually a, a spiritual or mindfulness-based therapy when she, like in the early years, and she said, yes, but we can't tell them yet. <laughs> so now we all know. And um, so at Refuge, you know, I, I, you know, obsession, number 12, you know, that, you know, Refuge Recovery uh, as a program thrives, right? Well, obsession is that refuge recovery as a uh, as a uh, rehabilitation center, you know, in LA and then beyond. Um, you know, our the, the clients are meditating, you know, about an hour and a half a day. Um, they're also getting mindfulness-based relapse prevention. They're getting somatic experiencing. And what I'm doing is is I'm training all the clinicians in EMDR therapy. And so when we meet for clinical meetings, we're all talking the same language, mindfulness, and how can we help people with their underlying traumas. Because uh, one of the, not failings, I'll just, shortcomings of traditional drug and alcohol treatment has been, you know, what happens after the 30, 60, even 90 days, right? You know, someone, even if someone goes to a halfway house, you know, like, what, what happens after? How does the person continue to, to heal? How does the person continue to get better? And my belief is, it is if from the beginning, the framework is that you can um, treat the trauma. I'll just give you a, a very uh, quick sort of glance at, at how we're thinking there. Is, and that's not the royal we, that's we as a team. Um, it's an eight-phase protocol, EMDR. The first two phases are simply uh, assessing, history taking, psychoeducation about the therapy, and then the second uh, piece is stabilization, right? And then three through eight, that's all the reprocessing of the trauma. So not everyone's ready to reprocess their trauma in early recovery. That is a given, right? But they're certainly eligible to have a focused, concentrated attempt to be held, to be uh, treated with loving kindness, and to be given all of the greatest stabilization tools of the last 2,600 years or more, mm. right? And then having a community, not just in the rehab, but outside the rehab, where everyone's on the same page, like just waiting for that person to be ready to reprocess their trauma, and then those resources are available to them. Mm. Again, that's a real thumbnail. And I think that um, Josh joked when we were bouncing this back and forth that we're going to do this and we came up with the title and he goes, sounds like a five day retreat, you know, so we're trying to like see what I can do in, in our uh, 40 minutes together, but um, the, the possibility of more people 
having access to and being able to be guided through the process of healing trauma and building resources. Not just the resources that are uh, given to them, but the internal resources that each one of us has. Right? Buddha, Buddha didn't say the answer's out there. Buddha said the answer, you know, you're going to have the same direct experience that I have. And so, same with this. Um, EMDR therapy, the, the, uh, this is not an advertisement, by the way, for you, but <laughs> EMDR therapy, the, the, the basis of it is the brain heals itself. I don't do anything. I facilitate a process, and your brain heals itself. It scabs and it scars, and then we're good. It's not men in black, doesn't go away, it becomes adaptable, and, and, and it's just a memory, right? That happened. Yeah, that happened. Um, so, the road to healing the underlying cause of addiction is seems to be uh, a, an understanding of attachment, an understanding of my attachment style, the building of an understanding of trauma and its role in my difficulties, um, the use of the beautiful uh, tools of the Dharma and of good psychotherapy to uh, move forward, the development of Sangha so that we're not alone. Occasional fist fight outside of CBG. So before we go to questions, um, I wonder if you, because not everybody, of course, one of the nature of trauma is that it's very often erased from narrative memory, but people can actually, we can tell the likely presence of the traumatic experience, even one that's not cognitively uh, known by a client, because there'll be two things. One is hypervigilance, and the other is depersonalization or dissociative experience. I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about those, so if they know somebody or they themselves are experiencing any of those states that they could look into EMDR or other modalities. So um, you used the uh, squirrels or the chipmunks uh, looking for nuts. Uh, deer in the forest, right? Deer's in the forest, munching on grass. A <laughs> um, hundred times an hour it hears something and it goes into that orienting response. Mm. Needs, to, needs to look around. Ninety-eight times out of a hundred, it's the wind through the trees. Mm. Boring. One time out of a hundred, ooh, that is the hottest deer I've ever seen. I'm so <laughs> That type of excitement. One time out of a hundred, it's a bear. I run. I get away. I am not going to my dear friends and talking about the bear, the bear incident. I'm not on the shrink's couch five years later. <laughs> I can't be. I'm a deer. <laughs> it takes about an hour, right? It takes about an hour, and maybe you've had this experience, right? It takes about an hour for something to process normally, which is the cortisol and all the adrenaline, everything else to run out of the body. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this or seen someone experience this or seen an animal experience this. At the end of the hour, there's like this shaking, right? It's literally like coming out the extremities. If any of you have ever been in somatic experiencing therapy, or you might have experienced this in sitting, um, where there's like a buzzing in the extremities. And it's like a, it, it is, the way trauma we process. 
So the way that we end up getting there as, you know, unfortunately, fortunately, as humans, we have this whole prefrontal cortex deal and, you know, we can think. And so the way it gets maladaptively processed as opposed to going like that is that, number one, this part of the brain says, well, that really sucked. I'm not going to think about that again, <laughs> which is impossible. Right. right? So it goes that the body doesn't. The other uh, possibility is that this part of the brain goes, well, that really sucked. I better look for that everywhere all the time. <laughs> right? Everything's a bit. And then the last one is, again, something that we do share with the, the animals, which is the freeze response. Right. Which is, if you, you know, the gazelle is running away from the lion, and just before the lion leaps on it, the gazelle goes, <clears throat> right? And we didn't know what that was, and it seems to be this evolutionary gift of like a rush of endorphins and whatnot, sort of almost like a mini shock. Playing dead. Playing dead, which never works. Mine's <laughs> like, like, psych. <laughs> um, so anyway, so any of those kinds of responses to, you know, what would seemingly be either normal events. I mean, you think, you know, uh, uh, I, I was working at a rehab recently where I was seeing a lot of combat vets. And I was seeing a lot of um, combat vets who were, you know, someone comes up behind them, right? And they're just coming to say hi, right? And they just whip around and, and go into battle. And so, you know, there's different levels of it. There's different levels of our reaction of hypervigilance, our reaction of paralysis, freeze, our reactions of... Um, Dissociation, depersonalization. And again, those are, those are big words. When I say big words, I don't mean as in not to be easily understood, but more like um, sort of the same way that paranoid entered the mainstream culture, right? Like these are all words that are used in uh, clinical settings that uh, have been put uh, more on a continuum over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, where, you know, we all kind of fall somewhere on a continuum with them. It's not like either you're depersonalizing or you're not, all, you know, for, for everyone. Um, in any case, so these are some of the, uh, this is the source of it and some of the things to kind of look out for in yourself or others. You know, it's, it's um, the other thing is, uh, I'll bring this up at this point too, is this idea of resilience, right? And uh, not everybody who experiences the same potentially traumatic event gets PTSD or goes into these responses, right? So um, some of the attachment difficulties that you talked about, Josh, lead to less resilience. Um, if someone gets traumatized or goes through enough adverse life events without anywhere to go with it, whether it be therapy or sango or mindfulness or whatever it is that they're doing, to kind of help themselves, you know, over time, they can just chip away at that resilience. Yeah, there was a uh, study by, of people that were at the same proximate distance from 9-11 when it happened, and they broke the people down into their attachment styles, and they found that people who had secure childhoods were very unlikely to wind up with PTSD from a, being close to the Twin Towers, but people who came from anxious attachment childhoods where one or both parents were regularly unavailable uh, or where there was some form of abandonment in childhood were 
far more likely to develop PTSD from being in the exact same space as those who didn't. So the more that we have in childhood a secure foundation where our emotions are heard and regulated, the more likely we have resilience. And for, for when, when it, uh, as it pertains to addiction and addiction recovery, one of the biggest things, when I talk about stabilization, I'm talking about not just, you know, kind of calming things down. We're also talking about developing resources. And when I say developing resources, it's those things, you know, sometimes I'll be working with someone and they'll remember, you know, it's not just about remembering the bad stuff. It's I remember when I was 11, I felt really good about X, Y, and Z. And it's just been layered over by all these things. And we zero in on that and we build that back up. It didn't disappear. It got just covered with a lot of experiences and a lot of difficulties. So um, resilience is not something uh, that has to be manufactured. Mm. You know, resilience is, you know, again, I'll say it again, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's right there. And that's, so that's part of the deal, too. So what, thank you for listening. I wonder if there's some questions we could have before the evening ends. So that any questions at all about addiction, uh, uh, trauma, attached? Hi. Hi. Um, in terms of Buddhist practice, is meditation and rain like the? I guess the insight is that the way to deal with trauma, like specifically in in a Buddhist framework. In terms of, I guess, reprocessing the. I personally would say, for me, and I would like like to hear Steve's answer more, but for me, I would say that trauma is one situation where I would first, if there's any Buddhist practice, um, of course I would want that person to be in therapy, in community, but I wouldn't necessarily push them into insight, which is RAIN, first. I would actually want them to practice with a self-soothing practice like metta, before they went anywhere near that, and I'd want them to do that mindfulness practice first in the conjunction with a therapeutic alliance. That's my take. I'd like to hear. Yeah, and that's a beautiful question because I, I come from a very both-and perspective, and I also come from perspective like I can't remember which uh, Jack Cornfield book it was, but he was talking about so trying to determine between uh, a spiritual emergency of the kind that comes from the insight meditation and just untreated trauma, you know, exploding, you know, when the person is uh, not secure enough, you know, in their, either in their practice or in their community or in their teacher relationship. So I, I feel and I love that it's not cookie cutter, right? So for some people, the insight road may, may do it. And so that's why another obsession lately is sort of uh, a combination of uh, it's sangha and also the teacher relationship or the therapist, you know, the relationship of the guide, you know, just to make sure um, that uh, I had a therapist, my therapist here in New York, all, all, all the years I was here, he used to say, even the president has a cabinet, you know, so, you know, really developing that sort of crew, doesn't matter what size, of people who can have both the objective sort of observation, but also, you know, our spiritual friends, you know, Dharma friends who kind of are on that same wavelength and or, you know, whatever recovery modality otherwise or, or therapy modality. So I, I don't think it's cookie cutter, but, and, I, and I think there are many people who will walk through that, you know, doing uh, insight. It's not out of the question.
Do you see any link between uh, EMDR and Buddhist practice? So, um, I, it wasn't the title or the absolute main focus of my doctorate, but pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and and so um, I actually I I I've been telling the story. Uh, Noah hasn't stopped me, um, and he uh, he uh, told me a story where there's uh, he has knowledge of Francine Shapiro going on a mindfulness exploration prior to coming up with EMDR. And so I see it as a mindfulness therapy. I mean, we're doing bilateral, stimu you know, bilateral stimulation. There's two things going on at the same time. There's uh, mindfulness of the eye movements or the tappers, and then there's mind br bringing the traumatic material to be observed, you know, within that context. So. Yes, I see a, a very strong uh, tie. I think that's what's drawn me to it. Um, you guys touched briefly on um, attachments and relationships, and um, do you think meditation is a good outlet, or is there other forms of uh, outlet to deal with attachment and relationships, unhealthy attachments and relationships that maybe have to do with like parent abandonment? There's actually, uh, I mean, yes, if you have a, a self-soothing spiritual practice uh, and also internal awareness, you can catch the feelings that will arise first in the body that will be signaling that you're going into fight-flight, where you're going into defensiveness. In my case, I can tell when I'm no longer available for a rational discussion because I feel my uh, shoulders go up and my the chest tightens. So there's certain body indications that if you have uh, if you have if you've developed an ongoing embodied somatic awareness that will help you uh, you know first uh, know when it's a, it's not a good idea to work through an issue and then to self-soothe using uh, so many different tools like one tool is simply extending the out breath twice as long as the in-breath, that stops the release of cortisol and relaxes the body and will, it'll tell your, your right hemisphere and midbrain that everything's okay and then you'll be more open to work through a conflict. Outside of Buddhist practice, there's a, a lot of modalities. I'm very much in favor of imago therapy, which is where a, couples, a form of couples therapy where people work through the, the way they project early childhood abandonments and treatments onto their current partners. And it's got its own series of practices where people investigate how they essentially uh, might project from a past experience onto a present one, generally an early past experience. There's also Gottman therapists which tend to help develop an environment where people can learn to have a set of ground rules to work through conflicts. I'll say that there's a lot of studies that show that couples that never have conflicts are actually not as stable and long and enduring as couples that actually know how to uh, work through conflicts. When people bury conflicts or don't talk about it, what happens is 
they spread like pollution under the groundwater all the way throughout the relationship, and then they'll have a fight about something, or somebody will suddenly disappear, or they'll be not hearing. Where couples know how to have outlets to work through conflict, specific times where they meet and they practice making statements, I feel this when this happens, I feel first-person subjective statements, where there's no interrupting, where there's mirroring, where people report back the, what they, the feelings that they heard the other express, which is called mentalizing. In that kind of ground rule, I, I believe that that's a really a perfect partner with spiritual practice to help a couple uh, work through uh, challenging phases of a relationship. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, just good couples therapy before the shit hits the fan. <laughs> it's like 90% of the people who come to me as a couple, it's like, you know, there's a thread that's over there. They're not even hanging on the thread. Like, Fix this. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I don't think I can. <laughs> so, you kind of presented um, Refuge Recovery's alternative 12-step fellowship, specifically AA. Curious to know, like in your experience, um, are there people in refuge recovery that also participate in AA? To what degree is there overlap between them participation? So there's, you know, there's such a newness to, to refuge, and so what I've been noticing um, is that the people who come into the rehab, uh, I would say about 75% of them probably uh, are working a refuge program and a AA program or a 12-step program simultaneously. So there's like different people coming in. There's uh, people who are coming in who are like, this 12-step thing is just, I cannot deal with this at all. Let me try this. Um, there's people coming in who they're sort of front-loading with like, I'm really interested in Buddhism. And it just so happens that I'm also getting sober and refuge recovery exists. And then there's people coming in who are, uh, um, you know, seeing refuge recovery as a new path and, and this is where it's being sort of doled out and where it's being trained. So a lot of people, the, the people who are uh, going to AA or going to 12-step at the same time, uh, I would say a majority of them are you know, doing step work and doing refuge inventory work. Um, some of them are, the others are going because the fellowship's larger. Obviously, they just, there's just more contact, more meetings, more people. Um, so yeah, just I'm really excited. I'm having a good time just sort of watching it sort of unfold, and I'm really curious about it. You know, I'm someone who I still go to 12-step meetings, so you know, I'm 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 loving the, the more more is better. You know, like a, a lot of what I've seen, the alter, alternatives to 12-step, they just never get any sort of traction, and refuge really seems to be, and it makes sense to me why getting some traction. So all the way in the back, and then after this, where we have to end. But if you have a you know question that you'd like to have answered, you can come up and say hello to us. Uh, I want to remind you that when it's time to go, if you can contribute, because we do need to pay for the space and keep Dharma folks going and everything. So thank you for that. And last question. So I don't know if this has anything to do with addiction, but it might probably tie in. So I've noticed with my emotions, like especially anger when I was growing up, there was a lot of shame around expressing anger. Um, you know, don't do that, that's bad, that's, we don't like you, you do that. How do you 
feel the shame or not feel so bad about yourself when you feel the anger in yourself and people notice? That brings up a really, uh, one, that's a really wonderful question, and there's, uh, the reason why I'm actually very drawn to that is because I believe, I mean, it's obvious, we live in an extremely misogynist culture where women are conditioned, I don't know if this was specific in your case, but women are very often conditioned away from expressing, feeling, uh, embodying anger. Very often men are conditioned uh, away from sadness or from fear, uh, but in our culture women are unfortunately due to uh, embedded uh, gender expectations are uh, essentially shamed away from feeling what is an essential core survival emotion. Anger, I gave a talk this uh, Sunday and Monday on alleviating anger and the, the point is, is that there's no way not to feel anger. And if we develop a kind of embarrassment of it, or a shame, or a relationship with it that's uh, uncomfortable with the feeling of anger, which is never going to go away because it's a core emotion, um, then what happens is we will, whenever it arises, we'll use defense mechanisms. Uh, we'll try to push it away through distraction, denial, We'll switch emotions from anger to another emotion that's a masking emotion. We'll project the anger onto somebody else. We'll transfer it. We'll, there's so many different defense mechanisms, and all of them are maladaptive <laughs> because we can't live without feeling the embodied state of anger when we felt we feel mistreated. It's there for a reason. It's there to empower us to establish boundaries. It's there to empower us to... Uh, state that something's not acceptable and so the way forward is to find that relational experience where somebody can listen and be with your anger without you have to practice being in a secure alliance with someone who will not shame who will not con continue the marginalization or the the message that your anger is not okay and that, you can't tell yourself that. You can intellectually know that, but if the defense mechanisms are so deeply embedded, you'll, you will suppress it even before you're even aware. I've worked with women in the last of 11 years who swear when they start that they don't feel anger because it's that quickly suppressed and repressed. And that's what we do as a society. We shame women from feeling anger. We shame men from feeling fear and sadness. And so the, the role is to create a safe container where anger can be felt and expressed and not shamed and tolerated and mirrored. And the Good Therapeutic Alliance, the, the person you're working with says, I get it. You know, that's okay. Feel that. What does it feel like? Tell me where you feel your anger. And they get you to be able to hold it, and through that exchange, then you can move into, you know, expressing it to family members or bosses or co-workers or roommates where you can say, when you, you know, do this, I just feel like, you know, my stomach tightening up, my, my arms shaking, my jaw locking, it makes me feel angry. Just a Buddhist perspective, too, um, you know, uh, I've been doing anger management groups for like 20 years. 
um, based on, I don't know what, my own anger problems that I had, and then I got involved with it. And I've worked with, in, in the same group, where the people that I've never, I never feel angry, and the rageaholics. And underneath all of it was the shame and the misunderstanding of anger as a prime, I'm glad you said that, because a lot of people say it's a secondary emotion. It's not, it's a core emotion. And it's one of the three poisons, you know, greed, anger, delusion, right? It's one of the three poisons. So the same way our body is this great sort of tool to practice with, our anger is this great tool to practice with. So in addition to the relational piece is this idea that, you know, my anger is not this awful thing. It's this thing that I get to work with and I start to develop a new relationship with, you know, uh, internally as well. But it's, you know, it's a long process. One of the things I have people do is I have them start to track their anger. Just do a mindfulness of anger meditation for a week or two. Get a little dicey, definitely have some support when you do it. Like I, I, ju I just did a, a series of talks out in LA and I focused on the poisons and when we did the anger one, the next week everyone came back and they were all, like so pissed off at me. <laughs> yeah, I'm angry. <laughs> and I wasn't before. Nice work. But, but what you can do is you can just use like a zero to ten scale and just kind of like watch. Watch how it changes. Mo not, not even just, you know, week to week, but, you know, moment to moment or, or uh, hourly, right? Like, oh, I'm, a, I'm at a three. You know, that T-Mobile guy really did not get good service. You know, and, and I'm at a seven. You know, my, 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 my significant other called not being nice. Uh, oh, now I'm at a two. And I got on the exercise bike. You know, whatever. Um, but just to watch how it's not stuck. It's not, it's not stuck, right? It's impermanent. It moves around. So another thought with it. So thank you for coming. May all beings find true peace. Namo tassa bhagavato arato sammasambuddhasa buddhandhaman sangham namasami. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I thank you for coming, for being such a wonderful troop and for uh, supporting Dharma punks. And uh, I hope to see you again. And uh, thank you for your attendance. Thank you. Are you well?